Hello, Paceliners. Michael Houghton here, host of the Pace Line in Leadville, Colorado. Uh, a little demonstration to start off our show. I am on 6th Street right now, and this is the finishing stretch for the Leadville Trail 100. And I've just started the pedal. In fact, I just got to town. And I just wanted to show you folks, or have you folks here, how easy it is to get out of breath. Now I'm fresh. <laughs> this is just a matter of riding three or four blocks, going up 6th Street. The gradient is 5%. And as you can tell, I'm starting to lose my breath. And a lot of people say, there's not a lot of air up there. It's not the air or lack of air. It's the lack of air pressure. And that's the difference maker. Lack of air pressure means less air getting forced into your lungs. So I'm nearly at the finish line now and have ridden maybe three blocks, four, three, four long blocks, and I'm having a hard time communicating with you. Stay tuned, enjoy this show. We are coming to you this time from Leadville, Colorado. Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, and those wheels, at least for this week, have knobby tires and less than 30 PSI. And air <laughs> is a real issue for a couple of us on the Pace Line. Fatty and I are doing our best to fill our lungs, but sure is a struggle here at 10,000 feet. Fatcyclist.com, a big supporter of the Pace Line, and Fatty, fresh from one of the greenest places on earth in Ireland has now parked himself in the city with the highest elevation. Fatty, did you know that about this, this municipality, that Leadville has the highest elevation of any city in the United States? How does I, that feel? I believe it is the highest incorporated city, and not just because of Floyd's of Leadville either. <laughs> uh, who you met up with, I think, this week, haven't you? Yeah, I, I had a good long conversation. That'll be on the Cycling Tips podcast coming up soon. All right, Floyd's of Leadville. Floyd's setting up a interesting little business here in our uh, fair town for this week. Uh, RedKitePrayer.com is the home site for the Pace Line and RKPs. Patrick Brady is holding things down at sea level. Patrick, how's it going? Uh, well, I'm breathing better than you are. <laughs> yeah, you are. Uh, so take a deep breath because uh, this is going to be a Leadville-focused show and really... Patrick, when have we not <laughs> mentioned Leadville on this podcast? So you and our listeners have been softened up sufficiently for what is going to be an onslaught of a Leadville talk from Fatty and I. It's not all Leadville, <laughs> but mostly. Uh, Fatty, um, they must have a plaque for you downtown. You have been here so many times. This is uh, 19, I believe, right? With any luck, this will be my 19th finish, and you know, n knock on wood or whatever uh, wood-like surface you have, um, I, I this will be my 20th start because I DNF'd in 2009, crashed out, um, but I am hoping to have my 19th finish this, this year, and next year, I am assuming everything goes well, my 20th finish, and at which time they give you a belt buckle the size of a TV dinner tray. <laughs> what keeps you coming back? Yeah. What keeps me coming back to this race is really it, it's my it's my personal yardstick and tradition. Um, something that I was thinking about is that I started doing this race. Um, it, it, it was my first big race after I started riding. I did the Leadville 100 when I was about two years into riding at all, and you know, coming back every year, it's been sort of a good way to sort of measure. Uh, hopefully and usually my progress as a writer. Um, sometimes it's shown that I have some w work to do to lose some weight or to regain some fitness. 
um, more and more, it's also just been sort of a place for me to get together with friends and family and start showing them off. I mean, I, um, you know, to be frank, my, my wife's and my courtship happened mostly, uh, in the way of starting as friends training for the Leadville 100. Um, so it's, uh, you know, th- there is uh, there and, you know, this year my twins are, tra- are, um, crewing for me and, um, my stepdaughter is racing for the first time. It's, you know, this has become much more than just a race. It's when you do something enough, it becomes a little bit of who you are. And Leadville is for me, at least certainly that way. Okay. Speaking of who you are, hang on. I got to ask about your, uh, I'm going to call highly suspect ideas about courtship. I need to hear a little <laughs> bit more about this. Um, well, well, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'll, be, I'll be happy to give you the, the full details. Um, so uh, Lisa was had, had done Leadville before, um, before she and I, uh, you know, ever started dating or anything like that. But um, I, uh, okay. you know, of course, writing has been a big part of my life. She and I, uh, mostly, we just got together as friends and started writing together. And that sort of became... Um, they stopped being rides and became dates that were still basically rides. Our, um, you know, going out for us was usually, you know, a post ride, you know, chocolate milk and, you know, and a sandwich or, you know, know, something where you're just starving after a long ride. So no, our, um, uh, we, we trained and that was how we dated. And, you know, honestly, you know, six years into our marriage, that's still how we, you know, that that's still what we do when we are going out for a, you know, in quotes, date. Patrick, we're going to do an entire Ask the Expert segment with Fatty on, you know, getting into this race, setting a yeah. goal, finishing, keeping it fun, which obviously he's figured out how to do. Um, because, I mean, we could wander around town here in Leadville all we want. We're not going to find somebody with this level of experience. So a little <laughs> later in the show, if you folks have ever wondered about how I get in, what it's like, what it takes to finish, Fatty's going to have all those answers for you. And we have an interview with the race director of the Leadville series, Josh Colley, that you'll hear from too, coming up. But I'll tell you, one thing they tell racers here, especially newbies about Leadville, is uh, the descents. Attacking the descents is just simply not worth it, is the advice you hear over and over. Mm -hmm. A crash usually means game over in Leadville and... At the games of the 31st Olympia, well, the final descent was a scene of, of decisive crashes, guys, in both the men's and women's road races. Now, the difference here, of course, is that Leadville's descents are more like obstacles. You just got to get through them somehow and then make up your time somewhere else. In a road race, and especially the Rio course, as we saw, a descent is a place to take time or gap a rival. Remember what Chris Froome did on the Pure Sword in the Tour de France. Amazing move. Back to Rio, though, uh, we saw... Vincenzo Nibali had gold in his eyes as he made the dash towards Copacabana Beach. But the shark, who's known as one of the best descenders in the business and probably would do just fine a descending power line here in Leadville, went down in a heap. Richie Port and Garrett Thomas also crashed on that same descent. All three ended up in the hospital. You know, their mishaps opened the door for two. Who to win, Fatty? Who won that race? I'm going to be honest. I don't know. Oh, no, wait. I do know. I do. You don't know. <laughs> you're, you're Muppet Man. Dude, I'm at 11,000 feet. Uh, it, that was that was Greg Van Abramont. Yes, did, 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 Greg did. Van Abramont, the non-climber, uh, ended up beating the climbers at their own game because he, first of all, survived the, des- survived the climbs, hung in there, and then, of course, survived the descent, which took out you know three guys who potentially could have run away with the thing as they dashed for the line. So it was Greg Van Avermont for gold, Mr. Muppet, uh, the top American, was Brent Bookwalter in 16th place. Now, for the women, it was damn near a repeat performance. You had Dutch race leader Annemiek Van Vluten crashing on the same ruthless downhill that claimed the leaders of the men's race. She ended up in the hospital with a concussion and three fractures to her spine. Now, she's going to be okay. And the Dutch did end up grabbing gold in the race. Her teammate, Anna van der Breggen, caught Mara Abbott 150 meters from the line. Vanderbriggen was with two others who also went past Abbott. So even though Mara Abbott ended up being the top American in the race, she went from first to on the podium to fourth in the blink of an eye. In fact, in about 150 meters. 
A writer we have been following and spoken to on the pace line, Megan Guarnier, finished 11th in the women's road race in Rio. Now, guys, descending is part of the business, right? And for better or worse, it can be a decisive part of a race. Yeah. For fans, crashing, well, it's like pure drama. And NBC, I'm sure, was not disappointed to have a little carnage to kick off its Olympic coverage. But, Patrick, is this how we want a major title, a gold medal, no less, decided with carnage, with crashes, as as racers are running into the finish? Well, it depends on what you want out of a race. You know, if all you want to do is find out who's got the highest VO2 max or whatever, just put everybody on trainers. You know, the point to road racing is to throw uh, a number of obstacles or, or challenges uh, at people. You know, I mean, when you look back on what racing has been over the years, uh, you know, get in the Wayback Machine and go back to, say, 1903 and look at what the Tour de France course was. Yeah, they hadn't added the Pyrenees or the Alps in yet, but it wasn't a flat course. Um, think about the oldest classic we have, liege Bestone liege um, That is a difficult, difficult course, and you do need to be able to go downhill. Um, sure, it's not descending, you know, uh, the, the Col de la Madeleine, but it's... Uh, it's still got its technical challenges. And I think that a, a champion ought to be measured um, by a range of skills, not just how fast he can pedal. And so, I'm, mm. you know, I, I mean, I don't ever want to see somebody crash. Nobody wants to see that. Well, okay, maybe some highlights reels, guys. But, you know, mm. you don't want to see people injured, but you do want to see uh, their, their abilities challenged. And there's more to being a great bike racer than just pedaling fast. So uh, I want to see challenging courses. I want to see courses that have, you know, technical descents in them. Um, I just, you know, uh, that that line, um, I can't say her last name, the, the, the Dutch writer, uh, that was an awful, awful line into that corner. It did look terrible. You're, you're exactly right. And I was a bit surprised at Nibali going down uh, in a heap. He's known to be pretty darn good and know what to do. In fact, there's been articles written about him and by him showing, showing uh, amateurs how to descend properly. But he was, yeah. you know, he was left on the side of the road as, as the group flew right by him and, and uh, certainly ended his, his chance at a gold medal when he was looking mighty good. Um, but, yeah, I think you're right, Patrick. Descending is part of the game. you got to get through it. We have to do it. Uh, in mountain biking, um, otherwise, let's just have time trials. Or like you said, let's put everybody on trainers and, and see who's got yeah. the best lungs. Not I a mean, lot of fun to watch. And I mean, that, I mean that to point out how ridiculous that idea is. Obviously, nobody wants to watch people on trainers. But really, you know, if you're going to have just people race uphill, that's all you're doing. You know, so it's kind of a silly mm-hmm. idea. Uh, we all make a lot out of uh, Strava segments, of course. But what do they really mean when you are going for a gold medal? Well, not much uh, other than the usual bragging rights. Of the five Strava segments on the Olympic road race course, the best a king of the mountain could do in the actual race was Kazakhstan's Andrei Zit. He got the KOM on the Estrada de Canoas and crossed the line in eighth. For the women, uh, Ashley Mulman Pasio of South Africa got the queen of the mountain on the Casa Perfetto Mesa and finished 10th overall. All the QOMs, by the way, were posted during training rides, not during the women's road race. Fatty, a, a lot of folks um, around these parts in Leadville obsessing over, over Strava and checking Strava times, checking their own times, other people's times. Um, does this kind of cloud our judgment a little bit, this, this Strava stuff, as we set out to, to do something important? Boy, it sure clouds mine. Um, it, it works both ways. You can start thinking that you are really in going to have a stellar race uh, when your your numbers look good and you forget that being good on one day doesn't mean you're going to be great on another. And the flip side of that coin is, you know, and as I noticed myself uh, when I po- when I named a ride earlier this week uh, sim- or, uh, on Strava, I named it simply, I suck. And I meant it absolutely sincerely. I, I did the, the famous... Uh, St. Kevin's Climb, uh, actually hoping to set a new PR, missed it by a full two minutes, you know, just completely, completely failed. And it messed with my How head for days. How long a climb is this? It, it, How long it's, a climb um, is that? It's, I don't know, about 
it's 11% for a mile at point one, right? So it is just an absolute killer. And I was doing it on a single speed and I just attacked it too hard. I didn't ride it smart. But you know, it's the, the fact is, I'm, I'm not in the best shape of my life, but I'm not in the worst shape anyone's ever seen either. And you can take Strava for good or for bad way too seriously and think you are going to do way better than you're going to or think you're way worse than you actually are. At least that's what I hope. You know, Who knows? Maybe I'll find out in a week that I am actually way worse than I thought I was. Who knows? <laughs> Bottom line, don't obsess over Strava. Use it as yeah. a tool. It's a little measuring mark. It's a little thing, little blip along the way of your training, possibly of how you are. But it doesn't. It does not tell all, as certainly the Olympic road racers uh, found out. Uh, the TT results are also in. Uh, Fabian Conchalar going out with style with a gold medal for the men, and Kristen Armstrong won her third gold medal in the women's TT. There was a lot of grumbling about the selection process for the women's team when Armstrong was picked for the squad. Well, she kind of silenced some of the complaining for now. Maybe next show we'll get into, guys, uh, the selection process for the women's team, how that went about, and uh, where things stand now. Now that Kristen has kind of gone, you know what? Look, I was the right person to come in and, and race on this squad. Peter Sagan getting ready for Rio by racing in Wyoming. Uh, Sagan skipped the men's road race in Rio. He thought it was too hilly, yet Greg Van Avermont didn't think so. Uh, Sagan instead entered the... Cross-country race for, uh, he's rather entered into the cross-country race for Team Slovakia in Rio. And to get ready, he lined up for a 50K mountain bike affair called Pierre's Hole. Uh, His finishing 50K time was just over two hours, and he was 21 minutes ahead of second place. So going well against a field that, you know, clearly he had no problem handling. He could have also, by the way, raced a World Cup event at Mount St. Anne, but he he probably would have stopped or rather started at the back of the field and maybe not gotten a good measure of how good he was running because he would have had to pick his way through a crowd. So instead he went to Wyoming and raced there. And I think he's been training a lot in that area too, Wyoming and Utah. So, But I want your predictions, boys. Uh, how do you think Peter Sagan will fare once he lines up against the best and the biggest in cross country in Rio? Who? Uh, fatty. What do you think? Peter Sagan in Rio on a XC machine. I think it's never a good idea to bet against Peter Sagan. <laughs> I, I'm going to go. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not only betting that he will win, but I'm rooting that he will win. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not even going to pretend that I don't love this guy. And who doesn't, right? <laughs> Patrick, uh, how, how about you? What do you think? Uh, he's you know clearly going to be up, a, up against a stacked, a smaller field than a normal World Cup field. But a stacked field, nonetheless. Uh, yeah. What do you think? What are his chances here? Well, if you'd asked me the question last night, I wouldn't have known what to say. But then I saw a video today of a lap of uh, the Rio course. And um, if he doesn't kill it on this course, I'll be amazed. He, he is absolutely my favorite to win. Uh, I mean, I know there are going to be some, uh, some just fantastic people out there. Um, you know, former Olympic champion, you know, many World Cup winners. Uh, it will be, you know, a very thoroughly talented field. Um, but the surface, for the most part, is, you know, it's like some of those equestrian paths that I used to ride in L.A. that were just packed hard dirt. Um, and, you know, for a guy with the kind of aerobic engine that he has at this point for having, you know, just won the green jersey at the Tour de France, um, you know, the guys are going to be hard, hard pressed to have the same sort of fitness that he does and his ability to accelerate out of the turns, his technical skills on the rocky sections. Um, I think he's going to roll in all by himself. He is a Jew. He's a former junior mountain bike world champ, and he took silver at the junior cyclocross world champs before he went to road. Uh, but Nino Schurterman, he's been killing it on the World Cup circuit. And Julian Absalon, the senior citizen of the World Cup uh, circuit, <laughs> just won again at Mount St. Anne. So I think Peter's up against it. Uh, he's got two, at least two, very, very motivated men that he's going to somehow have to try to get past for gold. Uh, yep. Podium? May, may be more realistic for Peter, in my mind. Uh, coming up, uh, we ask, we do, that is an Ask the Expert segment. And boy, do we have 
one of those on the topic of Leadville. The best way to get in, how to finish, and how to make time. And Patrick takes us for a ride with a cutter. That's next on the Pace Line. You've accepted a challenge to ride your mountain bike across the tallest, the toughest, the baddest mountains in the state of Colorado, and you've got to do that in less than 12 hours. You're better than you think you are, and you can do more than you think you can. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, with two-thirds of the show coming to you from Leadville, Colorado. Fatty is here, Michael Haunt, your host, also in Leadville, the high country, and we have left our partner, Patrick Brady, at sea level to keep things in check for us. Uh, I got a few moments, guys, with the race director of the Leadville series, a big job that is more than the Leadville Trail 100. There's the entire mountain bike series and the running events to manage. Uh, Here's a few moments with Leadville race director, Josh Colley. We're here with Josh Colley on the Pace Line. Josh, how long have you been... uh, been connected with the Leadville series, both as race director and in any other capacity. Yeah, well, I first raced uh, the 100 in 2001 and came back again in 2006 and did the Silver Rush 50 many times. I've uh, been race directing up here since uh, 2011. So, it's yeah, it's been going on six years now. Yeah. What have been some of the, the bigger things you've seen happen under your watch or in your time with the Leadville series? What are the things that you've gone, yeah, that, that was huge for us. So I guess the introduction of the qualifiers, um, the series that we have across the country now to let people get into the race by qualifying was one of our biggest steps. So as I mentioned, Austin, we also have the Wilmington race. We have Tahoe. We have now Lutzen up in Minnesota and then Barnburner out in Flagstaff. Uh, so that gives people from across the country uh, an easier way to get in after the lottery has been selected because now they have regions they can go to and not have to travel all the way across the country to get like to the Silver Rush. Now they can pick something closer to home. And, and, um, that's all right. Dogs are part dogs of the show. Right. They've, they've often been part of the show. In fact, it's okay if we get a little dog bark in there. Regarding the qualifier series, what's the idea with it now? Is the idea to expand it? Is it just right? Where do you stand with that? No, we're always looking, you know, to add add more options. Um, some people are coming to race it and and to get in. Some people are already in and coming to get a better crowd spot. Some people are just looking for the best event that they can find, and we're shooting to make every one of those qualifiers, those satellite races you know, right on par with the hundred. We don't want them to be subpar. We want them to be just as good, really fun events and obviously make the hundred in August, the culmination of that. But still we want those to be very entertaining, good courses, good setups and keep our branding package, you know, consistent with what we do up here in Leadville. So yeah, obviously the LT 100 is the crown jewel, but the energy uh, is really being infused into the qualifiers to try and bring them up to prominence as well. That's true. And, And how do you go about trying to do that? Well, you know, every course offers something different. The one in Austin has a lot of single track. It's a lot of true kind of more technical mountain biking. It's a lapped course, which we don't really use many other places. And then you go to Wilmington, and it's more of kind of a wide open road section course like the 100 without a lot of elevation. And then Tahoe, you go and you get a lot of elevation gain in there, and it's real rocky and dirty and kind of more like the power line section of Leadville. So they all have their own kind of personalities. And um, that's that way people can choose where they want to go, where their strengths are, and maybe try to hit that qualifier. But the biggest thing is we want people in the Leadville family. And instead of only letting them do that on one day in August, we want them to be able to do that throughout the season leading up to the big race. And we want them to feel like they're home and they enjoy what we do and we enjoy seeing them all the time. So that's the goal. Now, as you've grown, um, both on the pro level and the amateur level, um, there I would guess there have been at least approaches by sanctioning bodies to try and sanction this race. What is your folks' attitude about having a sanctioned race or do you like it the way it is? Well, you know, from way back when Ken and Mary Lee started all this, back in the old days in 1994 for the bike race, it was always the, the every man's race. You know, you didn't have to go to do something specific. You didn't have to have a resume to get into Leadville. It was luck of the draw. It was, quite, it was getting in through the lottery. So we definitely don't want to lose that factor. Anyone that wants to come toe the line for the first time on a 100-mile race, Leadville's your spot. We also don't forget about the pros and how much they mean to our media base and how much the sponsorship grows by having big names in the sport. That's obvious, and it's an important part of it. But the very last guy coming across the finish line means just as much as the very first guy coming across the finish line here. How do you strike that balance then? I mean, because the pros have made a big deal about this race. Um, I think their sponsors really like to see them perform well here. But you've got the guy way up uh, 6th Street there standing at the back who's – got a lot of interest. So how, how do you balance 
you know, paying attention to the pros yet keeping that guy in the back happy too. Absolutely. And that's, that's kind of the difficulty. And we've tried, you know, year in and year out to make sure that everyone feels like they've gotten the best experience possible on the hundred course, whether they're doing it in six hours or 12 hours, we want everyone to feel included and everyone to feel special. And when those guys cross the finish line, everyone gets the medal hung around their neck. We're not forgetting about anybody at the end of the pack. Um, you know, the buckle celebration and the award ceremony on Sunday, it's, it means a lot to everyone and their crew and their family that's sitting in that room. And we want it to stay that way, you know? So, uh, it's, it's the best part of the race because you see such a big gamut. You see the pros just come in so fast. You see the guys in the middle of the pack. You see the guys at the back with the biggest emotion. I mean, tears are flowing and it's probably the biggest accomplishment. Some of those people have done in their whole lives. And that's really important to keep that, you know, that's consistent. Yeah, Cause I imagine it's something you hear. Cause I've heard it too. That's that some people say, Oh, Leadville's getting harder to get into. It's becoming a pro-centric race. That's where they seem to be putting their dollars. What do you what do you say to that type of critique? Yeah, I mean, no, I don't I don't believe that at all. Um, the pros are coming because they're interested and because the name does have a big. Uh, you know, a big tag with it. That's, that's one of the races that people want to bag if they possibly can as a pro. So it's always good to have those guys interested. Um, but striking the balance is just as important for us. We, we can't lose the fact that the weekend warriors, the everyday athletes, whatever you want to call them, bring a lot of clout to Leadville because they're the ones that go home and tell their friends and their family. And then it just multiplies from there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's tough, but yet it's important to keep both, both values there. Yeah. Where would you like to see the LT100 and the race series uh, a year from now or even five years from now? What, do you have a long-term goal? Absolutely. So we're still, every qualifier we want to grow. You know, we want every one of those to grow even more. Um, some of them have more room than others to, to grow. But we don't want to just sit on our laurels and expect, you know, to be happy at five or 600 at, at Wilmington. We want that thing to be at 1,000, 1,200 people. It's a great region out there. Same way with every one of the qualifiers. The 100, unfortunately, were capped. We can't let a lot more in because of the Forest Service permit. So, um, you know, those spots get divvied out the way they've been done the last six years. And that's by first lottery, then qualifiers. Um, and then growth-wise, we have a couple new brand new events that most people don't know about yet. But the silver or the stage race has grown uh, by 100% the first year. And it's a really cool uh, format. Three days on the 100 course. We bring people back and we uh, sit them down and wine them and dine them and, and have a lot of fun talking about the day's events and how exciting the course was. We let them leave their bikes out on course and they're all tuned up and washed up and ready for them when they get back out. So it's one of those events that's, uh, you can either take it as a, a precursor to the 100 and see what the course looks like and race it, or you can take it more of a kind of just your first time to Leadville and experiencing the whole town. Because you know, on the hundred, it's, there's a lot on the line. People are pretty worked up and they're kind of worried about their gear and their nutrition. But at the stage race, you can come back and you can kind of d dissolve it a little bit and think about what you did and what's going to happen the next day and hang out with everybody and have fun. Is, is there any thought of adding more races to your series? Definitely. Yeah. If, if, uh, if we have some come along that look very attractive, you know, especially kind of in the Southeast, we're always looking for something over there. There's a really big uh, demographic there around Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, um, and so we're in Texas, but that's not quite far enough yet. We feel like we're looking for something still that's going to fit the bill right time of the year. You know, once we get into June, July, and August, we're so busy up here, it's hard, but with their climate being warm early, we might look at something early in the season after, right after Austin. So that's always a possibility. And I'm really excited about it. I've got a couple leads that I'm chasing on that. Again, that was Josh Colley, race director for the entire Leadville series. So when it comes to the LT100, as we like to say for short around here, this show doesn't have to go far to find an expert. Fatty has uh, got 19 starts under his belt and gearing up for his 20th, and that belt does include numerous gold buckles. So Fatty, from the first time you showed up here to now, how has this event changed? And give us the things that have changed for the better and the stuff that turns you off. Yeah. Um... So here's how it's changed. The first time I lined up for the Leadville 100, um, there were about 400 of us. And I think that was up from maybe 200 or 300 in the first event, which meant that um, going down, um, I believe it's 8th Avenue and uh, on Leadville, there it would just go to, uh, you know, be about, you know, a hundred, you know, a hundred people deep, you know, four or five across, and it would make it to the first cross street. Nowadays, it, that line, that starting line goes 
up the same street, but it goes about four blocks. It just goes and goes and goes, and it's incredible. Um, it used to be that you know, when the race first started, we didn't even have timing chips. It, it was recorded by you know by hand on paper back then, and it was the first it was the first real mountain bike race that I had ever done. You know, I hadn't you know, I'd done some local stuff, but I had never done anything um, before. Uh, they've changed the course a little bit. The, there used to be one quick descent that was known as Collarbone Hill or uh, you know, it, uh, other colorful names for it uh, because so many people have taken, uh, taken endos going down it um, and now it's been replaced with some single track. And the one piece of single track there used to be at the beginning back in the old days um, is gone um, because the, it was so early in the race and so technical, unlike the rest of the Leadville 100, that you would actually have a Congo line of people walking their bikes for the entirety of it. The, I don't believe I ever rode any of that, at least on the outbound uh, part of the course. You would get to the beginning of that single track section only, I don't know, maybe an eighth or a quarter mile long, and then just get off your bike and walk and, you know, follow everyone else as they walked it to. Um, so, you know, so, some things that the course is, uh, I would say, manifestly better. It's perhaps a little bit longer. Getting the coveted sub nine is perhaps a little more difficult than it used to be. The course is perhaps a little longer than it used to be. But bikes are a lot better than they used to be. I mean, there was no such thing as a 29er wheel back then. And if there has ever been a course that begs for a 29-inch wheel, it is the Leadville 100. You can just go so mm -hmm. fast. It also used to not be much of a, a pros um, course. Uh, there would be um, people who had a lot of endurance cred, like John Stamstead won the first uh, Leadville 100, I believe. Um, but you know, he was, was Oh boy. Um, I think that was well, about 24 years ago. Um, I, I think this is the 24th Leadville 100. So uh, doing so the math, all but 16, four of them. I've done all but four. Yeah. Wow. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's been going on for, for a little while. And there are a few people who have done, all of the, you know, every single one of them, but not very many, maybe only a dozen people or so have uh, done more than 20 of these. And with any luck next year, I'll, uh, I'll join those ranks. So I'm kind of looking forward to it. Well, it can, the LT100 continues to attract. It remains a bucket list for a, a number of people. Uh, for the first time, though, I have heard some grumblings about getting into this race. So give us your keys, Fatty, to getting into the Leadville 100. You bet. So the easiest way to get into the Leadville 100 is to have done it more than 10 times. And so th that's obviously a chicken or egg argument, but I'm one of the people who did the race before it was incredibly popular. And I, as far as I know, I no longer have to ever worry about getting in. The, I don't have to you know, go through the, well, I, I still enter the lottery, but I've never not made it through the lottery. And I don't know many people who have mm -hmm. done the race more than 10 times who have any trouble getting in. But uh, that said, the lottery is the most popular way to uh, try to get in. Um, in the fatty cast that I did with Ken Clober a few weeks ago, I asked him how many people uh, enter the lottery, and he said a around seven to ten thousand people was his guess. And while he 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 made it clear that he was guessing and that he's not actively involved in it anymore, I I think that's probably. Uh, that, that number resonates with me. So you, you have a less than one in 10 chance of getting in with a the lottery. There are, of course, what you can qualify in, and a lot of people do that, but there aren't a lot of places, there aren't a lot of races that are convenient to most people to qualify in. The way that I, that I personally got my Da uh, my stepdaughter into the race this year because I wanted to be 100% certain that she got in and didn't have the money or resources or time to, you know, you know, hope that she was fast enough to get in through the qualification process. And I didn't have any 
particular sway into getting her past the lottery system is by using the charity slot system. And um, Leadville has their own charities and will also let you fundraise for any other charity. And you can um, you can go ahead and enter Leadville by raising money for the charity of your choice or one of theirs as well. And that's the way we had her do it. She is racing as a NICA fundraiser, uh, as a as a, uh, via getting her entry by fundraising for NICA. So I, we thought that was kind of a cool way to do it. A lot of people I know also got in by fundraising for World Bicycle Relief, another of my favorite charities. So that's another way that you can right. do it. And then there's there are other things like the CEO challenge. If you're the CEO or a C-level uh, muckamuck from a big company, you can get you can get in through that. And you can do one of their challenge camps is where you pay $2,500, go to one of their training camps, and included with that is a um, entry into the race. So the, you know, lotterying in is the least expensive but least likely way for you to get in. Fundraising to me is the, uh, the best way to get both make sure that you get in and to do something good for a charity of your choice. And I think if you, if you team up too, if you show the race, we have a team – this is our team, and our team has a charity. I think they look favorably upon that as well, and, and we'll find a way to help get you and your team into the race. And that sounds like a great way to come back and do this. You do it with a group of people. You all have one stated goal. Uh, yeah, you have sub-goals, which is finishing and buckling, but you have a goal of raising money, which seems like a cool way to take advantage of the what Leadville will do for you if you're willing to to do something for a community or a cause. Okay, now you're in. Uh, next goal, finishing. If all a rider wants to do is make that 12-hour cutoff, what should they focus on, Fatty? I would say the the thing that you got to focus on is eating. Um, I, I've said so many times, and it's 100% true, Leadville is an eating contest disguised as a race. And it is so difficult to eat, you know, to keep calories going into you when you are above 11,000 feet. You are breathing triple time. You are almost certainly getting dehydrated. You are not, you're not getting enough oxygen no matter what you do. And your stomach rebels and you don't want to eat. And so you don't. And you feel, you feel better because you don't. And you get through you know, you get to the turnaround at 50 miles, you come down, you're still feeling okay. And then at mile 60, all of a sudden, uh, you're, you're out of gas and you can no longer pedal with any power. And it is so hard to get yourself back together. So, um, if, if you can force yourself to keep going, you know, hundred calories every half hour, even at above 11,000 feet, when you're going up this ridiculous altitude, you're at this ridiculous altitude at a ridiculous gradient, you can still, uh, or not ridiculous gradient, ridiculous grade, then you have a much better chance of finishing than if you give in and say, I'll eat when I get back down to lower altitude. By then it's too late. Mm-hmm. You've dug yourself into a hole you cannot climb out of. Yeah, how about how about goal buckling now? Say your your goal is sub nine hours. You want La Plata Grande. What are the difference makers there? Mm-hmm. Uh, the number one tip remains the same. You got to be a, a, a good eater, and you also have to be a good climber who is good about thinking about the long game. Um, it, you can get to the turnaround because uh, it's a primarily out and back course in a time that looks like you're going to be sub nine. But if you have burned too many matches and have ridden the stuff that you should have gotten off your bike and pushed and thus stretched your legs and given different muscle groups a rest, then once again, you're going to get down to, you know, the 60 mile mark. You might feel fine for that because you've been, you've been racing strong throughout the year, but then you get to mile 75 and you've got three more big climbs ahead of you, including power line, which is just ridiculous. And if you have been, if you've already burned all your matches, 
you're going to find that instead of doing that final 25 miles in two and a half hours or so, suddenly your legs disappear and you're going to do it in three, three and a half hours. It's happened to me. I'll say that. And I'll say this about eating. um, And I heard this from you and Rebecca Rush, and that is turn your stops, your, your feeds into pits into F1 pit stops. I mean, you want to be in and out of those stops yes. with efficiency and make sure you've got everything planned out, laid out, talk to your crew beforehand about what you expect when you get there. Don't leave it up to some type of cafeteria style potpourri. I might want this, I might want that. Mm-hmm. Know beforehand what you need when you hit those pits so you can so you can jet right out of there and don't be afraid of taking a push. Um, so, Fatty, if I gave you a magic wand right now and, and, um, and you could change something about the Leadville 100, if there is anything you would, what, what would you do different here if suddenly you were race director? If I were race director, I would change the way the race starts. Um, it is a mass start with everybody, you know, if, uh, and, and they do a good job of corralling it so that people who have qualified in or who have turned in a fast time in previous years are relatively near the front. Nevertheless, it's a narrow road with a couple of, uh, you know, right angle turns and people who aren't necessarily good at handling their bikes. There is a lot of clustering and there is a lot of elbowing and there is a lot of nervousness about getting bars tangled and going down in the first couple of miles, which are downhill fast pavement. And then, of course, you get um, the serious bottleneck in the first climb, which is St. Kevin's. I would say Leadville is ready for a staggered start. Send you know, go ahead and use the corral system that it's got right now and have a one minute delay after each corral going. Send out corral one, wait a minute. Send out corral two, wait a minute, and so forth. And spread things out early so that we don't have the bottlenecking and the jockeying for position right at the beginning of the race. What that That would be the single thing that I would you know, that I think could make a substantial difference in quality and finishing times and safety for every racer. Well, good points all. Um, you know, that's hopefully a little starting point for folks who are still thinking about this race. We know a lot of people are with the number of entrants we see or the number of people applying uh, for a lottery spot. So use this as reference. Uh, reach out to Fatty too. Uh, on his blog or at RKP, wherever you like. Um, ask him questions about you know, this race. He has a wealth of knowledge. Um, I'm happy to be housing with him this week yeah. because he's literally across the hall from me, and I could say, oh, Fatty, what should I do <laughs> as I'm uh, crossing the pipeline section, and how should I? He can answer all of that for you. He knows like every inch uh, of this course. Um, I would tell folks, I'm a, just a four-timer, that the, the one thing I always point people to are the two DVDs that were made um, the 2009-2010 uh, races, great resources, actually, very accurate. They give you a good idea of what's going to happen on this course. Actually, if you watch them enough, you'll get out here and you'll go, wow, I know this turn and I know this climb and because you've seen it already. It also allows somebody who may not have a bunch of time to come out here and pre-ride just to pick and choose a few sections and then roll through the rest with the knowledge that, yeah, I kind of know where columbine gets above the tree line and i know about the turnaround because i've seen it a number of time on those two dvds and by the way during my convo with uh, josh Colley, i asked him um off the off tape about the making of a future movie a race across the sky and he said yeah they'd like to do another one possibly next year and it would not only involve the mountain bike race but the running race as well so um another dvd could be in the works here uh, regarding the LT100 and its sister race, which actually was came first. The, the, the running race actually mm-hmm. came before the mountain bike race. Uh, it's a good thing we brought up movies, Fatty. Otherwise, we would have no way of circling back to poor Patrick, who was uh, suffering in all this <laughs> Leadville discussion. Sorry, um, Patrick. Patrick, you must be feeling uh, a, a little starstruck, not because you're in the presence of Fatty again, but... You've been hanging with the one and only Dennis Christopher, the man that most of us know as the cutter in the moving Breaking Away, Dave Stoller. So cool. 
such an important movie, not only for cyclists, but anyone who struggled with what, identity or class structure or bullying. Uh, tell us about meeting uh, uh, Dave Stoller, Dennis Christopher, as he's really known. <laughs> uh, you know, of the many famous people I've met, you know, there were probably some who were sort of bucket list. Oh, I'd love to meet so-and-so. Uh, and certainly there were a few I went out of my way to try to meet when I was a younger person. I, it never occurred to me that there might come a day when I would cross paths with this guy, let alone really get to have a chat with him. But uh, uh, Mozzie Bicycles, um, or at least uh, their American affiliate, I have no idea what they're doing in Italy, but uh, the uh, Mozzie USA operation is having a celebration or had a celebration to celebrate their 90th anniversary. That is, it's been 90 years since Faliero Mozzie first started building bicycles, if you can believe that. Um, man, yeah, long before he started doing it professionally, he was a hobbyist like so many guys. Um, and so as part of the celebration, they commissioned a book. They showed breaking away uh, at a little bitty theater in Carlsbad. And uh, somehow they coaxed Dennis Christopher into coming down. Uh, I had a chance to be introduced to him just before the show. And we spoke for a few minutes. Didn't have time to try to record an interview, uh, something I had hoped. Um, you know, he was just so in demand in terms of, you know, selfies and autographs and that sort of thing. Um, completely understandable. Um, but then... Uh, we spoke a little bit uh, later that evening. Um, he gave uh, a Q&A session um, to uh, those who were there at the movie. So for half an hour following the film, uh, people asked him questions and uh, he answered them very candidly, I might add. Um, and I ended up transcribing that, spending 10 hours to do so, but I transcribed the whole of that Q&A session and it's up on RKP for people to check out. It was really a pretty incredible time and, you know, in its own right, a completely satisfying experience. But then the next day there was a ride for Pob Love and uh, they were raising money for that. He came out to kind of start the ride off and whatnot and was riding an e-bike. Everybody rolls out. Uh, he wasn't familiar with this particular system and was having a little bit of trouble with it. Fortunately, I knew a little bit about it and I'd, I'd stayed back because I wanted to get a picture of him actually riding and not just be, be able to say, oh, I rode with Dennis Christopher. Um, so we pulled over. I got the system running for him. He got the little hand of God assistance and we started rolling down the coast uh, there in North County, San Diego and just started chatting. And it ended up being uh, a pretty remarkable experience. I mean, very quickly, the conversation turned away from the film. There was really only one or two comments about that. And it really amounted to his concern uh, that, you know, he's this guy. He played Dave Stoller um, and, you know, inspired all these people into bicycles. And he didn't want to do anything that would, you know, not live up uh, to that mythos that the, the film established. He didn't want to let people down in any way. And so he was concerned about it from that standpoint because he's not really a cyclist anymore. And so, you know, I've said, hey, look, you're not here to impress anybody. You know, everybody's gone at this point. It's just a few of us here. Um, he had a friend of his along and then there was a woman on a Vespa scooter following us in case there was some trouble with uh, any of the bikes. And I said, you know, yeah, you don't have to impress anybody. We're just going to have a nice ride on the coast. And so we proceeded to have a chat about spirituality, the value of prayer and ritual. Uh, you know, you can call it that or meditation, but uh, talked about, you know, some pretty not cycling-y sort of topics. But also we spent a remarkable amount of time talking about his support for e-bikes and his belief in that as something that could really be transformative for our society. Um, he's just beyond on board. It's hard to put into words how enthusiastic he is about the emergence of this technology. Is he, is he actively involved in the movement or is he uh, um, just a rider of e-bikes? He, he will be actively advocating on behalf of e-bikes. It's not happened yet, but it's going to, uh, 
I am aware of who he's in contact with, and this is something that's going to happen. Don't be surprised if six months or a year from now, you see a PSA with a roughly 60-year-old Dave Stoller riding an e-bike. We know that e-bikes need legitimacy uh, in a lot of states. California finally just got around to making a kind of a class system for e-bikes. New York essentially is, has them outlawed at this point because they classify them as mopeds. And so to ride an e-bike in New York without the proper uh, licensing or registration is actually against the law, if you can believe that, even though it's a, a pedaling bike. So it, it does uh, the movement does need a boost, and he could provide that. What? How did he come across as an advocate? Do you, Patrick, do you feel like... He has got that type of personality to go out and make a, a a push for something like that. Is he a voice? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, you know, the thing is he's um, so kind of emotionally open and, uh, you know, naturally very articulate, but he's got such a soft touch as a result of being uh, primarily a film actor rather than a stage actor. You know, if he was a stage actor, he'd be, his movements would be bigger. He'd be a much showier, louder sort of person. And uh, film actors are characterized by, you know, uh, smaller movements, uh, a, a quieter voice. There's a lot more that the camera can capture that you don't get if someone's up on stage. And so in that regard, for him to be in front of a small group or to be, you know, on camera uh, you know, on a TV show or, you know, shooting a PSA, that sort of thing. He's, yeah, he's exactly what the movement needs. There's no doubt in my mind. The few moments that he spent during the Q&A session following the showing of Breaking Away demonstrated that, you know, when he decided to talk about it, uh, he wasn't just credible. Um, he, he did a good job of selling the idea. Again, uh, a great movie, I think, to this day. It, it holds up, um, and it's good to hear that Dennis Christopher is out there, still involved in bikes in a different way. It's not a racing aspect. It's now more of a transportation thing. If you want to, of course, read more about what Dave had to say about his movie life, about the movie that we all know him for, Breaking Away, go to RKP. There's a two-part Q&A there uh, with Dennis, plus Patrick has posted something on the Mossy 90th anniversary, which is a Got a whole cool factor going to itself. They have a special bike out that is just lovely. I finally saw one in person at a shop uh, the other day. So check out those three pieces on RKP for more on Dennis Christopher and, and the Mossy celebration. <laughs> uh, and there will be a, a, a another post coming about my ride with him. So not even finished. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. The, the Secret Talks with Dennis Christopher and Patrick Brady on RKP coming up. Okay, next, we talk... Tire pressure, a very important thing uh, here in the high country and on the Leadville 100, and the knowledge you need and the tools you need to go with that. That's next on the Pace Line. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, fatty at fatcyclist.com. Me, Michael Houghton, we're both uh, here in Leadville. And then Patrick Brady, of course, uh, in Northern California. Patrick keeping uh, Red Kite Prayer running strong these days. Fatty, after all these years at Leadville, you must have a general idea of what tires to run and pressures, of course. Give us a, a brief history of your Leadville tire <laughs> evolution, what you've tried, what works, what does not. Yeah, that's actually a really good thing to bring up. Uh, it, that is one of the things that I have learned uh, a lot about. Um, I I remember uh, my first and probably second and third Leadville 100, I was running around 40 to 45 PSI, which I just am astonished by now. You know, I, and But I think lots of people were doing that back then. Of course, tubeless was not yet a thing and I was running on 26 inch wheels like everyone else. But, you know, now I run, um, I run 20 in the front and 22 in the back. 
And for my wife and for my daughter, I have them running 19 in the front and 20 in the back. Um, I, I am... I have found that the uh, the specialized fast track control is a fantastic fast rolling uh, tire that uh, for this kind of course, and so ha- uh, have have a lot of those uh, have crossed the finish line on a lot of those, and I'm happy to say that I've never actually flatted even once with uh, with the fast track. So uh, big fan of those. Um, I do, I do still see, um, and when I talk with people before the event itself, I still see people who are quite a bit lighter than me, quite a bit smaller than me who are riding at above 30 PSI. And there's really, I mean, unless you are, you know, 250 pounds plus, you shouldn't be looking at, you know, anything that is even in the thirties for uh, you know for a mountain bike anymore it's uh we've entered the the era of a a nice squishy tire uh supple as can be and um yeah and and it is so much faster and just so much of a better experience and at the end of the day you just feel uh like you haven't had all of your fillings rattled out have you tried anything that just bombed out that didn't work at all that you would absolutely you know veer people away from you know, I don't think that I have ever had horrible luck with a tire. Um, I've, uh, I, I remember way back in the day when uh, the low profile tires were first coming out. There were some things that were so low profile um, that I felt like I was washing out in anything that had any kind of loose gravel. But uh, those days are so far behind us, and, and uh, frankly, those kinds of those kinds of tires are not really even on the market anymore. We've we've evolved past the really bad stuff. So twenty up front, twenty two on the rear. That's yeah, that's down there. That's um getting close to the twenty seven and a half plus tire uh, inflations that we see. So Patrick, a little help with inflation now. You are currently uh, giving two pumps actually test rides. One has a complete write-up on RKP, a high-ender from Silka. And then there's this mountain bike-specific pump from Topeak that you've been handling um, called a Joe Blow. Tell us about those two products. How can they maybe help somebody who uh, is very particular about inflation? Well, you know, I think it's worthwhile to back up and say the entire reason that Josh Portner left Zip and bought Zilka was because of his experience at Perry-Roubaix. He was there with one of the teams uh, they sponsored, Quick Step back then. And they had three different old Silka pumps. These were the old pieces from, you know, God knows how long ago. Uh, one of which I've got in my garage as well. And they had uh, a digital gauge along with them. And they realized that the uh, that the variance in inflation between the three pumps was great enough that uh, depending on which pump you used, you you may think you had 50 PSI in a tire and may only have had between 35 and 40. The, the gauges were terrible in their accuracy. And so one of the reasons to start uh, to buy uh, Silka and you know start working on new pumps uh, was to provide people with gauges that were actually accurate. And so they're plus or minus, you know, a percent. So when you see a tire that you think you've pumped up to 20 PSI, you know, it's within a very small Mm. fraction of 20 PSI. It really is that, Um, you know, your gauge can say anything. It doesn't mean it's accurate. And so one of the big reasons Mm -hmm. to buy Silka is for actual accuracy so that you don't have to go out and then buy you know, a digital gauge or find some other way to verify that that tire is at that pressure. You know, one of the, one of the things that's key for people riding, you know, mountain bikes, uh, or, you know, gravel riding, adventure riding, um, it, you know, main, making sure that you have your tires accurately inflated, you know, to what you think, uh, you need is really pretty key. I mean, if you can't replicate what you're doing ride after ride after ride, uh, it's going to be hard to know just what you need, you know, for a given circumstance. Uh, the other pump that I've been uh, reviewing lately is called the Joe Blow Booster. 
So it's from Topeak and it's part of the Joe Blow series. What makes this one really cool is for all of us who are running uh, some tubeless tires on, you know, one or more of, of our bikes, it's got an extra chamber uh, that you can inflate uh, or, or pressurize and, you know, take up to uh, 60, 80, 100 PSI. And then uh, with the turn of a dial, uh, it'll release all of that air that you've uh, pressurized, you know, through the hose and into uh, the wheel. And so it's really terrific uh, for seating uh, tubeless tires. Uh, I'm, I've become a big fan of it. Unfortunately, it doesn't have uh, quite enough capacity to be able to seat a 27.5 plus tire. Um, I found that I still had to go visit a local bike shop and, and borrow, uh, their compressor to get the, the tire seated. But for, uh, cyclocross tires, road tires, you know, uh, anything adventure oriented and up to, uh, a 27.5 by 2.2, uh, I've been able to inflate all of those, uh, using the Joe Blow booster and it's pretty dynamite. I really like it a lot. It also places the gauge really close to your face or as close as a, a floor pump can so that it's easier to read the gauge than some with some pumps. Well, you might be a, a little blown away, no pun intended, about the price of that Silka pump, the first one you referred to. It's, what, $235. I mean, that is yeah. up there. But for that kind of price, you're getting what? You're getting a, a well-made, uh, lifelong pump that is extremely accurate. That's the point there, right, for that price? Yeah, as I wrote, you know, that this pump has a lifetime warranty is both the point and beside it. You know, the, the chances that you'll ever need to get something warrantied on that pump are, are really stunningly low. It's it's built to last. It really is. Um, and, you know, it's built with even greater quality than the original Silkas were. And like I said, I still have the original Silka that I purchased back in, I think it was 1990, 90 or 91. Um, so mm -hmm. I've had one for 26 years. This one's going to hold up even better. Um, yeah, you know, some people are going to find $235 a, a bit too much to spend on a floor pump. And the Joe Blow Booster is 159 you know, it's, it's less, oh. um, and it's, you know, it's got a, uh, some really nice features to it. So it just depends on your needs. Well, what do you say we let the air out of this show? Uh, I'm totally out of breath. Out of questions. <laughs> Podcasting at this elevation guys is uh, kind of anaerobic. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty out of it. Fatty, I'll be keeping my eye on you though for the next few days. Uh, what do you have on fatcyclist.com and the fatty cast? Oh, before we shut down and before I tell you, I want to know, what pressure are you running on your tires, Hottie? Um, I'm pretty close to you. I've actually gone down a little bit. I'll be 23 up front with a 2.2 and tw probably 26 in the rear with a 2.0 on the rear. So that's probably what I'm going to do. Or I, I, might even, I might even roll down off of that a little bit. I know that the, the, the big man, Todd Wells, he ran a 22-24 the year he, that he won. So... There's no reason to be up in that 30 range, as you as you said earlier. All right. We'll talk. I think you need to let a little air out of your tires, man. <laughs> How about the FatCyclist.com and FattyCast? What's coming up there? Well, on FatCyclist.com, I'm essentially on hiatus right now. I, in addition to the uh, having been in Ireland for work, I'm on vacation with my family. I'm going to post some pictures from, uh, from, the vaca uh, from this vacation. But this week, I ain't got nothing going on but some relaxation. Uh, on the fatty cast, um, there, I'm going to be, uh, working on releasing some, uh, episodes that I have wanted to get up forever. Some great recordings that still have not seen the light of day in particular, a really great conversation I had with Ibis founder, Scott Nickel. So that those are the biggies oh, cool. and, uh, hope to get those up soon. But to be honest, I am really enjoying just being on vacation. Well, if you if you folks are interested in more about Leadville, Fatty also spoke with Ken Clover on the Fatty Cast. Yeah. That is a an insightful interview. It gets more into the the spirit of this event and less about the details about racing it, like we talked about in the Ask the Expert with Fatty. But it really will uh, allow you to kind of get a view of how wh why this race is here, why it continues to to be here, and the, the visionary behind it originally. 
And there's an interesting thing about one Lance Armstrong in there. It's kind of an interesting moment that you really want to go and check out. I think it's it'll catch your ear, that's for sure. Patrick, uh, we covered a lot of your stuff in this show, despite being a Leadville-centric show, but uh, Red Kite Prayer continues to be updated. So what is on deck there? Uh, well, actually, I'm going to share a little something else. Uh, funnily enough, while you guys are, are busy killing yourselves at altitude, I'll be here at sea level on Saturday racing Annadale, one of Bike Monkey's events. It's only 25 miles mm-hmm. long, but I figure I'm probably going to be out there uh, hopefully less than three hours, but it will be um, a mostly single track race and one stunningly hard day that I'll be doing on a, a trail bike, actually, a 27 plus okay. five inch travel trail bike and killing myself out there while you're busy doing Leadville. Mm, cool. All right. Yeah. Uh, the pace line, of course, has its home on the pages of Red Kite Prayer. And uh, we encourage you actually to treat the pace line like any post you'd see on RKP. Get in there, leave a comment. Uh, we are still working on a segment, in fact, that ties in with the campaign season. We've been talking with some of our, our housemates here in Leadville about politics and riding. And speaking of which, Fatty is uh, interested in hearing about just how chatty you are on the bike. Uh, oh, yeah. Something else we want to talk about on the pace line in a future episode. How do your conversations flow? Do you have them? Are you a quiet person on the bike? I think, of course, that all depends on how hard we are going at the time. <laughs> Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, the other place to grab an edition of the Paceline. Rate us on those sites, please. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Paceline Podcast. I've been trying to send out the occasional message there. So for Fatty and Patrick, I'm Michael Houghton. We'll talk to you next time on the Paceline. This should be easy, right? Well, <laughs> this is Leadville, and we're talking 10,000 feet here. Man. Man.